A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Bit of good news to share as well. I've been hiring for an assistant on the podcast, and I'd like to just find out from the final candidate how he got quite so far in the process. I was in prison in Siberia. I spent my first winter wearing a dead man's coat, a hole in one pocket. Shoot these fingers off before the frostbite could turn to gangrene. These I gave up to avoid working in the sulfur mine. That is how I survived when so many others did not. Uh, just a quick update on the process. I've decided not to hire an assistant. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. The story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, it's given away by the title, really. I'm here to talk of the stories of films, and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all those ingredients, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast, they lean more towards the mainstream than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of the movies and a real appreciation that it's really hard to get a good film made. I cover two films in each episode of the podcast and I'm going to get on with the first of them now. It's enough preamble, isn't it? Let me play you a clip from the trailer for the film concern. I'll come to the story of it. The other side of this. There's this guy. He's the kind of cop. At least he used to be. He doesn't care about proof. He doesn't care about the law. He only cares about what's right. He knows what I did. You can't protect me. No one can. And that is a clip from the trailer for Jack Reacher, which came out in 2012, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who also wrote the final screenplay for it, based on the book One Shot by Lee Child and starring Tom Cruise, Rosamund Pike, Richard Jenkins, Werner Herzog, David Ayelowo and Robert Duval in their key members of the cast. And so, I mean, this is the story of bringing the character of Jack Reacher to the screen for the first time. It had taken a long time to get this point. To this point, there had been false starts, and there was an awful lot of enthusiasm to see what just what Reacher could do in the world of cinema. 
But for the purposes of this story, let's go back to 1997, because that was the year that author Lee Child's first adventure for the character of Jack Reacher hit bookstores. It was in the book Killing Floor, and here was Jack Reacher, a character six foot five tall, a, 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 a real force of nature. And it didn't take long after the publication of the book for Hollywood to come sniffing, just the kind of hero it was looking for, particularly in the 90s, a kind of Schwarzenegger Stallone kind of bulky kind of leading character. And so companies such as New Line Cinema took a look and Polygram Film Entertainment took a look and there were options taken on the Jack Reacher book as well. But nothing really caught fire in those early years, even as Lee Child kept writing more Jack Reacher books and even as those Jack Reacher books kept selling lots and lots of copies and the character started to enjoy an awful lot of success and growing profile. But if there was a catalyst to ultimately getting Jack Reach to the screen, it was the 2005 novel One Shot. And that was something that really reignited interest in Hollywood. Not that the interest had gone away, but One Shot felt like it was the kind of story that could be properly adapted for the big screen. Now, by this stage, there were said to have been auditions or certainly people interested and expressing interest in playing Reacher that Dwayne Johnson took to his social media accounts just a, a year or two uh, a year or two ago at the point this has been recorded to talk about how he chased down the role of Jack Reacher, but ultimately someone else got there to it. You can guess who, but we're coming to that because it was in June of 2005 that Tom Cruise, for the first time, came into the world of this character. Now let's contextualise where Tom Cruise was in 2005. The films that he, he was doing around this time, well, 2005 saw the release of War of the Worlds. Great big huge hit. The year before was Collateral. The year before that was The Last Samurai. But unbeknownst to him, he was about to start hitting a bit of bumpy road. However, he was he was embarking on Mission Impossible 3 and it was his own production company, Cruise Wagner Productions, set up in conjunction with Paula Wagner, inked a deal with Paramount Pictures to produce a Jack Reacher movie. Now, in 2005, it was far from certain that Tom Cruise would take on the role of the lead character himself, but his name obviously lent it some rocket fuel and now the Reacher project was, was looking like it was going to move forward. There was the small matter that Mission Impossible 3 had to be made and released and that had been set up now at Skydance with J.J. Abrahams directing, making his feature directorial debut. Where the plan was to take the character and to fit the Jack Reach project in, well, it wasn't that clear at which point, at this point certainly, and it was all muddied uh, fairly quickly too when Tom Cruise was signed up to a really unusual deal to basically restart the label United Artists. Now, in the history of cinema, United Artists was, was set up by a bunch of high-profile creative people to give them stewardship over their own movies, to give them control over their own work. Now the brand had landed, well, it become a brand in modern-day times, had landed at MGM, and Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner were brought in, basically, to head up their own studio. And the films that they were getting moving were well, a Robert Redford drama called Lions for Lambs was the first project, which came out in 2007. 2006 Mission Impossible 3, though, as I've covered 
previously on this podcast, that hit box office bumps. It was still uh, it was still a successful movie that grossed hundreds of millions of dollars. But Tom Cruise's reputation had taken a little bit of a hit uh, as a result of matters that have been so well discussed all over the place, really. And so there was there was dissent at the very top of, uh, of Paramount Pictures about whether it was worth continuing with Tom Cruise. That Cruise then jumped to the MGM deal and got Lions for Lambs going and then committed to another film under that deal, a film called Valkyrie. Well, that meant that his time with Paramount Pictures was starting to look a little bit sketchy. Following then Mission Impossible 3 bumping a little bit, Lions for Lambs came out in 2007 and did very little business at all. And then Valkyrie, which was directed by Brian Singer, and there's a character, it it kept getting delayed. I remember this. That I mean, the release date kept getting pushed back, kept getting pushed back. It was finally released and did decent business, got middling reviews as well. But it was the MGM United Artists project was swiftly coming to an end. And also Tom Cruise and Paula Wang dissolved their long-running creative partnership that had dated back to the mid-90s and the start of the Mission Impossible films. And so this meant that Jack Reacher went back to Paramount. Meanwhile, Cruz was leaning, I mean, for his next project at that point, he was leaning towards the film Night and Day that he would make with director James Mangold. I may come to that on a future episode of the podcast. Now, in the backdrop of all of this, Paramount kept working on the Jack Reacher project. Josh Olsen, for instance, was hired to come in and write a script. But eventually, the very top of Paramount Pictures, well, the musical chairs kicked in and it was decided that even though the third film hadn't done the business the studio was after, it was worth taking a punt on a fourth Mission Impossible movie. And for the first time in five years, Tom Cruise and Paramount Pictures were working together again. Brad Bird would be hired to direct what became Mission Impossible dash Ghost Protocol. And in July 2010, as well as the fourth Mission Impossible film gathered steam, it came the news that the Jack Reacher project had moved forward again. That this time Christopher McQuarrie had been hired to rewrite the script for the Jack Reacher movie, the screenplay that Josh Olsen had put together. And there was also the, the tentative thought that Christopher McQuarrie might direct the film as well. So this was some degree of a germination of the working relationship that was developing between Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie. Now, in recent times, I mean, the, the, it, it's so, been such an important relationship to blockbuster cinema that it's covered the last few Mission Impossible movies. It's covered Top Gun Maverick as well. And McQuarrie and Cruise have become a key creative force working together on, what, 10, 11 movies so far. The first that they'd worked together on was Valkyrie that McQuarrie co-wrote. He also contributed script work for Mission Impossible Ghost protocol but it was while he was doing junket rounds for Valkyrie that I met Macquarie and talked to him about this and he said at that stage he was actively looking for something to direct now, directing was something he'd done before. He'd made the underappreciated 2000 movie, The Way of the Gun, which he's done a couple of really interesting interviews about. And so it seemed it seemed logical that in the summer of 2010, there was this talk that he might not just write the Jack Reacher movie, but he could, he could direct it as well. Now, fast forward to the summer of 2011. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol at this stage was in post-production and Paramount Pictures was, was happy with what it was looking at as well. And the talk was coming in that 
Not only was Tom Cruise back involved with the Jack Reacher project, but he was going to take the lead in the film. A very strong rumour sprung up. Now, he had other projects that he was committed to. He was going to make uh, the film Oblivion, the sci-fi movie Oblivion, set up at Universal Pictures to be directed by Joseph Kaczynski. I'm definitely coming to that in a future podcast. So that was something he had a firm commitment to. He also had the promotional campaign coming for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. He was committed to that. He had been involved in the film of The Tourist that Macquarie also did screenplay work when Tom Cruise was looking like he was going to star in that and even at the point that Tom Cruise was just rumoured to be starring and taking the role of Jack Reacher well the backlash was getting underway it was noted that there was a real discrepancy between the physical stature of Jack Reacher again 250 pounds six foot five and the physical stature of Tom Cruise Now, that didn't stop author Lee Child expressing his enthusiasm for Cruise taking on the role. In fact, he was quoted by uh, Deadline as saying he was excited about Cruise playing the character. And within a few weeks, it was all confirmed. By July 2011, it was Christopher McQuarrie's not only written the Jack Reacher film, still called One Shot at this stage, Tom Cruise was going to shoot it as his next movie. He was going to fit it in before Oblivion, McQuarrie directing as well, and Skydance was going to be producing. This was continuing a lot of the creative relationships that have been in place over the last couple of Mission Impossible movies. And there was just a feeling of confidence as uh, uh, in terms of Ghost Protocol, really. That Mission Impossible film, what Paramount felt it had in the can, to the point where it was confident enough to green light after years of development, a Jack Reacher movie with a very, very firm eye on a future franchise. In fact, if this had panned out perfectly for Paramount, it would have Tom Cruise attached to two interchanging franchises. He'd do a Mission Impossible film, then he'd do a Jack Reacher film and so on and so on and so on. And so come July, Paramount was juggling those projects that he, I mean, there was a scheduling thing as well because Ghost Protocol's release had been put in for December 2011. Paramount's big film for December 2012, meanwhile, was the movie World War Z or World War Z, depending on your preference. And that left the Jack Reacher movie with an unusual release date, really. Paramount was putting it as February 2013. It was putting a Tom Cruise headlined movie, a pretty off peak time of the year that as much as we're used to now films coming out in February and going on to be monster hits it was very much the exception rather than the rule even 10 years ago and so a couple of eyebrows raised at the a, a Jack Reacher movie just landing in that slob However, there's probably a clue in the amount that Paramount was looking to spend on it. This wasn't the kind of budget that was going into a big Mission Impossible film. I mean, the Jack Reacher film isn't a full-out action movie, really. Although there's an argument Mission Impossible films aren't either. Uh, Paramount had put about $60 million uh, million aside for the making of the film, which feels quite modest. It still feels quite modest. But it also meant it gave it a a, a little bit of wiggle room that its expectations for the film... it kind of hinted weren't as high as they'd been with the ongoing Mission Impossible project. So a whole cauldron of things in there. But I mean, the crucial thing was we'd finally got a green light here. And so by August 2011, Rosamund Pike was cast in the female lead role in the movie. She'd been on a shortlist that included Alexa Davalos and Hayley Atwell, but she prevailed in this particular case. September 2011, Jai Courtney was hired to take on a role in the film as well. 
But it was in October of 2011 when the golden piece of casting came in. Werner Herzog, a man primarily known for his work behind the camera and his very, very distinctive voice as well. And he would bring that voice and he would bring the, his face to the role of the villain in the Jack Reacher movie. This felt like something of a coup, really, even though Herzog would not be in that many scenes in the movie. I mean, he's just his sheer demeanour brings with it a sinister edge. And as Herzog explained to The Guardian, he said, I was approached by Macquarie and Tom Cruise. And he said they wanted me. And he said, I think it's a logical idea. I won't do a Werner Herzog impression because I've done parts where I played really dysfunctional and outrageous and dangerous characters like in the film Julian Donkey Boy from Harmony Kareem. And he said because of that and other films, they were interested in me and I liked them for their professionalism and commitment, things that I prize myself. It was just a week or so after we got the confirmation of Werner Herzog as well that filming finally got underway on Jack Reacher in October 2011. So this is, what, 14 years after the publication of the first book and in much of that time the film had been in development and so it was quite a journey to get to this point. Now, there was the logistics of that Ghost Protocol press tour that Tom Cruise had to fit in, in and around the shooting of Jack Reacher. And it was about a three-month physical shoot in all, set well, set primarily in Pennsylvania in the US. And this was also Cruise as he fully entered his phase of doing more and more extreme stunt work. Now, arguably, that goes all the way back to the likes of Top Gun and certainly Days of Thunder as well. But I kind of think it was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol with him hanging off the edge of the tallest building in the world that it kind of lifted the levels of extremity somewhat. And in the case of Jack Reacher, one of the things that they were keen to put in was some fairly dramatic car chases. And as Christopher Macquarie would, it would explain, a lot of the time when you're filming car chases, what you're actually trying to do is hide the fact that the actor isn't in the car. However, when he was filming the car chases in Jack Reacher, what he was actually trying to do was show that the actor was in the car. It was Tom Cruise who was doing an awful... Well, he was doing the driving work, even to the point of it's Tom Cruise stalling the car at one point. We see this in the final cut of the movie, and this, this threatened to derail the stunt in question. But what happened was the car stalled, Cruise just kept going in character, managed to restart the car and drive it again. And Macquarie really liked this, left it in the film as well, just felt it just upped the ante a little bit. Now, the backdrop back at Paramount Towers was that Ghost Protocol, during the filming of Jack Reacher, would turn into a huge hit. It would turn into the most successful Mission Impossible film. And so the studio decided, against this backdrop, to reconsider its release, uh, its release strategy for Jack Reacher. That it did a bit of jiggling around, because it figured it had enjoyed a massive hit with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol at Christmas, with a, 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 an end-of-year release. And so that's what it was going to try and do with Jack Reacher. And so what happened is Jack Reacher moved forward from February 2013 to Christmas 2012. It was now going to be a December release. Meanwhile, Paramount then delayed the very, very troubled, it should be noted, World War Z, stroke Z, to the following summer as well. I've covered that film on a previous episode of this very podcast. 
And while all the release date changes and shenanigans were going on, I mean, the movie was still shooting. And I found, actually, an archive interview done a couple of years after the shooting of the film that took place between Macquarie and Jai Courtney. And it came up at Interview magazine. And in it, Macquarie calls the filming of Jack Reacher, quote, a big blur. And as Courtney says in said interview, well, I'm not sure if that's because of the workload or the amount of alcohol we were consuming at the time. And he says, I still quote your, as in Macquarie's, weirdo sleep pattern theory. He said, we'd be drinking. I'd be like, OK, it's time to turn in. We've got five hours. And you'd be like, no, you've got to wait until you've only got three hours. You can't go to sleep at the five hour point. It's nine, seven or three hours. And in fact, Macquarie would say that he made the film. I don't know how true this is, but it is in the interview. We He made the film working on two hours of sleep a night. And this was the first time he directed in over a decade. And by distance, his biggest movie, certainly behind the camera he also touched on the joy of having Werner Herzog on his set and he just said Werner telling you a story would shut down production we'd all be sitting there listening to him tell his stories and I got the chance to ask Jai Courtney about working with Werner Herzog he does a very good impression of him as well as some people do I am not one of those people and he just said that uh, he loved Werner he said a lot of people were nervous to have him on set because he's such an interesting character but he's a sweetheart he says he was cool makes some very interesting films and great documentaries he certainly does and he just described the whole thing as a privilege now filming wrapped up on jack reacher on january the 7th 2012 and so then it was into it was into post-production paramount was certainly having second thoughts about the title of the movie as it went into the edit and in fact a few months after shooting wrapped up but obviously before the release of the first trailer it did i mean the film had gone into production being known as one shot by may of 2012 paramount just rethought it and just went from one shot to calling the movie jack reacher now, throughout a lot of the build-up to the release of the film and the first trailer of it came out in July of 2012, the questions were still being aimed at Tom Cruise about his suitability for the re for the lead role. As the release date beckoned, he I mean, he was defending it. He just says, you know, um, he, he created the character, he said, of Lee Child. I had my own opinion that I didn't say to Lee, and then he came back and pretty much reflected what I'd felt about it. But Cruz insisted if Lee Child had said, I'd rather he didn't play the role, I would not have played the character. And he said, I mean, he was saying this on the uh, on the red carpet premiere that was taking place in London. The film did hit its new release date. It was out in December 2012 and the reviews for the film well the reception of it was was pretty good really certainly Macquarie's direction came in for praise and some of the action stuff there too that was given lots of ticks in reviews but you couldn't you couldn't really avoid the fact that a lot of the narrative remained about that core piece of casting as good a performance as Tom Cruise puts in the lead role in the movie and I maintain that he does was he really the character of Jack Reacher? And it was fans of the novels in particular who had the most trouble with it. There was no question whatsoever who people felt had stolen the show. Werner Herzog's very limited screen time mattered not a jot because when he did come on the screen, there was no way you were forgetting that man at all. And so off the back of generally positive reaction, well, it was ultimately up to the audience to decide. And so the film came out 
out a pretty competitive time. The week before the Hobbit and Unexpected Journey had opened and held first place, Jack Reacher's opening weekend of $15.2 million was not really exciting anyone, though. This wasn't a repeat of Ghost Protocol levels of business, and there's kind of a feeling where it's just like, this has underperformed. And if it's underperformed, then Paramount's hopes of making a franchise out of Jack Reacher's movies, Jack Reacher movies, was suddenly looking a little bit shaky. There were other underperformers around at the same point. The spin-off sort of sequel to Knocked Up, the film This Is 40 from Judd Apatow, that opened the same weekend with $11 million. The Guilt Trip starring Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand, $5 million opening weekend. The, the underrated DreamWorks movie Rise of the Guardians, that was still in the chart and hanging around, but again had fallen short of DreamWorks' expectations. And the following week after Jack Reacher's release, well, another load of big releases came along. Uh, Django Unchained from Quentin Tarantino, the film version of the musical Les Miserables. Also, a movie called Parental Guidance starring, uh, starring Billy Crystal and Bette Midler, which helped itself to about $70, $80 million. It's not very well-remembered film, that, but a live-action family movie around Christmas time. It was, it was working. It picked up. It, it got its dollars. However, in its second weekend, Jack Reacher held more of its audience than was expected. That ordinarily we expect a film's box office to drop 30, 40, 50, 60% on its second weekend. In the case of Jack Reacher, appreciating it was Christmas season, peak movie going season in America outside of summer, it dropped only 10%, $13 million in its second weekend. The following week, $9 million in its third weekend as well. And so by the time its US run was done, Jack Reacher pocketed a tidy but not spectacular $80 million. Now, if that had been the return for a Mission Impossible film, that would have been it. Game over. Mission Impossible films far more expensive. But this was a relatively modest, modestly costed production with a movie star in it. One of the one of the further points to note on it is outside of the US, the film found more of an audience. Again, we're not talking numbers into the stratosphere, but 138 million outside of America. All of a sudden, the Jack Reacher film had found its way to 218 million. And Paramount knew very well it's the kind of film that continues to sell, that even if there'd only been one Jack Reacher movie, well, the novels were still selling. People were still going to rent the film, buy the film, seek it out because, well, they'd just be interested in it. And also, I maintain, it remains a decent movie too. It did feed into a broader narrative that Tom Cruise's box office peak days were over. Oh, little we knew those people who were writing those articles at that particular point. But there was enough still in the bank to convince Paramount to push ahead with a second film that would come in 2013. It called Jack Reacher Never Go Back. And this time Edward Zwick would step in to direct. He directed Cruise before in The Last Samurai. And again, the reviews were pretty decent. There was no Werner Herzog chewing his fingers off, sadly. But the box office just dropped down a little bit. And even films like Oblivion and Edge of Tomorrow were, were getting good reviews, but weren't getting the kind of box office that you would ordinarily, once upon a time, have expected. And so come 2013, become the Jack Reacher Never Go Back uh, film. Well, Tom Cruise's involvement with the character and with Lee Child's creation was at an end. That was it. That Paramount wasn't going to do a Jack Reacher 3. And in fact, Jack Reacher would find a new home eventually on television. 
that in early 2022, Amazon Prime released the first season of Reacher, as the series was now known, with Lee Child again involved and Alan Richson taking on the lead role, an actor of very different stature physically to Tom Cruise. Lee Child 2, in the gap between the release of the second Jack Reacher movie and the launch of the Reacher TV show, he would reflect to Deadline on, on the casting, really. And he did say, I really enjoyed working with Cruz. He says he's a really, really nice guy. We had lots of fun. But he said, ultimately, the readers are right. The size of Reacher is really, really important. And it's a big component of who he is. And he said, what I've decided to do is there won't be any more movies with Tom Cruise. Instead, we're taking it to Netflix or something like that. Amazon, as it turned out, long form streaming television with a completely new actor. We're rebooting and starting over and we're going to try and find the perfect guy. I think it's fair to say that fans of the book are more comfortable with the TV series that we got. I still quite like the films, too. The biggest relationship to come out of the movies, though, to reiterate, was that between Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise. And it was off the back of their work on Jack Reacher and how well they got together. And McQuarrie proving himself as a director of films of this scale, that he would McQuarrie would take the mantle on the fifth Mission Impossible film and sparking a, a, a huge, huge path of success for those films we've just had we just had the seventh mission impossible at the time this has been recorded macquarie and Cruz are also working on the eighth as well and it's that it was the, the 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 confirmation really of those two as a working partnership was one of the big things to come out of it i too would argue we got a couple of decent films i'm not necessarily sure all fans of the books would would, would agree with me but still a story that took quite a long time to come to the screen didn't have quite the happy ending that its parent studio would have wanted but still not without some say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There it is. And that brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your time. This is the bit where I do my boring parish notices. So a few a few things really to tell you about. First of all, I've got a live show coming up. I've not done one for quite a while while I've been working on other things to do in the land of film stories. But if you are in the Birmingham area in the UK on Wednesday, the 27th of September 2023, and you come along to the Midlands Arts Centre, not only will you see my Movie Geek live show, but also you'll see the two guests that I've got booked in. Now, guests, of course, subject to change, but Oscar winner Nina Hartston is coming along to 
tell us about working on things like Cyborg Cop and Bohemian Rhapsody and Cats. She's bringing her dad, Graham V. Hartston. He's talking about working with Stanley Kubrick, James Cameron, Richard Donner on the first Superman movie, loads of James Bond films. They've got so many nerdy stories. I'm absolutely thrilled to get them to Birmingham. You can find details of that on the Film Stories website, filmstories.co.uk, or if you search for the Midlands Art Centre in Birmingham, there are details on there as well. If you like this podcast and don't mind supporting it, it's hugely appreciated. This podcast has only got to where it is because of word of mouth and support from people like yourself. There are three ways you can support it beyond listening to it. Uh, Thank you for listening to it. Uh, First of all, if you like it enough to put some money in the pot, then if you head to Patreon, patreon.com slash Simon Brew, you get the podcast early, you get it ad free, you find out all the gossip of what we're up to behind the scenes as well. That's patreon.com slash Simon Brew. Costing you nothing is to leave ideally a hugely positive review at your podcast home of choice. I thank the person who took that very literally. I did chuckle. You know who you are. Um, Likewise, if you could subscribe, that helps algorithms and things like that. And it just helps podcasts like this just bubble up. It is much, much appreciated. I am working on the new issue of Film Stories and Film Junior magazines as well. If you head to store.filmstories.co.uk, you can buy all the issues we've done so far. I'm also working on new Blu-ray releases here in the UK of No Way Out and Bull Durham. And so they're on sale imminently too. But that, in fact, that is a lot of parish notices, isn't it? I'm going to get on with talking to you about the next film I'm talking about on this episode of the podcast. Um, I'm going to play you a clip. Come to the story of this one, a much cheaper film, The Other Side of This. Who'd you write this song for? She's gone. She's dead? No, she's not dead. She's gone. My father used to play in the orchestra back at home. You don't want to go for a walk or something, huh? And that's a clip from the trailer from 2007's Once, which is written and directed by John Carney and starring Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Erglover. So just to set the scene with this particular film, let's go back to 1991's The Commitments, directed by Alan Parker. Again, it's a film I've covered before on this podcast. One of the interesting things about The Commitments was it brought a lot of new talent to the screen, a bunch of relatively unknown actors in the ensemble, some of whom who hadn't acted before. And in the midst of them, with a woolly hat and red hair, was Glenn Hansard. Now, Hansard wasn't the member of the cast who got all the headlines at the time. That would have been Andrew Strong, who played the lead singer of the band. But he would go on to co-star in another musical hit. So Hansard already knew a man called John Carney. Let's bring him into the story. Now, Carney, in more recent times, has done films such as The Brilliant Sing Street. But... 
in the 1990s, John Carney was the bassist in a band called Frames, and it's there that he first encountered Glenn Hansard, and the pair of them got chatting. Now, Carney was building a television career as well with the hugely successful Bachelor's Walk series in Ireland. He wrote and directed that. He was moving towards films as the decade, uh, as the decade turned as well. And he got his first films off the ground. We moved the story then to 2004. And Carney was sat in a cafe and feeling a little bit lonely. He was missing his girlfriend. And while in the cafe nursing what I hope was a delicious cup of coffee, he wrote an outline for a film in a matter of what he said was about five minutes. And that outline would remain the heart of the film that would become a little bit of a sensation three years later on. It never changed, Carney told The Guardian. He said, I was sitting there thinking, where has the Dublin I knew gone? He argued the city had shed a lot of its greatness. It lost its soul. And he said, I was seeing all these new immigrants in Dublin and identifying with them. And he said, I, I decided I wanted one character who was a Dubliner and one who was not. Now, Hansard and Carney had kept in touch. In fact, Hansard had suggested that they work together on something. Maybe Carney could use some of Glenn Hansard's songs in one of his films. That was one idea that was that was just mooched around. Maybe they could do some kind of music video, just, just something in there. And it was when Carney had this idea of a busker and an immigrant coming together that the path to their ultimate collaboration would start to be laid. Now, the film that Carney was putting together, though, wasn't originally designed with Glenn Hansard in mind. Instead, it was Carney seeking to re-collaborate with Killian Murphy, who'd worked with him on the 2001 movie On the Edge. And the lead role of this, this particular picture that Carney was fashioning were, was being done at this stage with Killian Murphy in mind. He knew already from working with him that Killian Murphy, I mean, he knew he could act. We're seeing that particularly at the time. This is recorded. Oppenheimer has been out for a month or two. But he also knew he's a decent singer. And what Carney realised was, well, he thought he could get an actor and train them to sing a little bit better. I mean, movies have done this an awful lot. And Carney was not shy of enthusiasm for good movie musicals. But eventually, over time, he decided to come at it the other way round to get a singer and nudge them towards acting. So with Killian Murphy still attached, it was Marquita Eglova who was brought into the film. She was 17 at the time she was cast and she was a musician. She was living in her native Czech Republic. And at the point this was getting ready to shoot, she actually had to get permission to get time off school to come and get involved. So she was due to star, Killian Murphy was starring and Glenn Hansard was beginning working on the songs. But for whatever reason, Murphy drifted away from the project. And I've seen a couple of possible reasons for this. Number one is the aforementioned reason that there was a change of heart about how to approach it. Bring in a singer, get that, teach them the, the basics of acting that they need to do. There was also, I mean, Hansard argued to The Independent that he felt that Killian Murphy had reservations about some of my songs. And he said they were quite hard to sing, quite raging. But also the character at that point was pretty dark as well. Uh, but for whatever reason, Murphy dropped away from taking the leading role in the film that would become Once. And with Killian Murphy out of the way, 
So was the funding. The, the, the limited money that Carney was attracting to make the film in the first place was gone. There was no star anymore. Even though Killian Murphy wasn't box office gold kind of name, he had some profile um, with him attached. People were willing to at least contemplate opening their wallets. Not anymore. And it took the casting of a new lead actor before they were able to scramble together just the few coins, really, that they used to make the film. So that's where Glenn Hansard came in. And it was Carney who pushed him towards taking the lead role in the film opposite Marquita Aglova. And talking to Chud.com, actually, there's a really big, long interview with John, uh, with John Carney there. And they talk there. I mean, Hansard's fairly, fairly open about the fact that he told John Carney that if he was rubbish, he had to sack him on the first day. And he, Hansard explained, he said, I'm a reasonably confident person behind a guitar, but in front of a camera is a whole other ball game. And he explained, I needed Carney to tell me the truth. Are we rubbish? Are we going to pull it off? Is it going to work? Because if it isn't, let's just pack it in. Now, in terms of bringing the story together, we jumped a little bit forward there because they're still fashioning the script uh, in the tale that I'm spinning here. So Carney had long been a fan of classic film musicals and what he wanted were songs that organically fitted the film. So he knew for that to happen, he needed the songs in place before the script was really written or as part and parcel of the script writing process. This wasn't a case of the songs coming along later and you bash them somehow into the completed screenplay. They had to be part of the building blocks of the film and so John Carney would tell Glenn Hansard just what kind of songs he needed and as Hansard said he, he, Carney would go up to him and say I need a song called Once or I need a song for when Mara walks down the street and it's the only part of the film where we'll suspend reality and I'm going to hire a crane it's going to cost five grand so we better get it uh, that's a rude word we better get it right let's just say that the ingredients here crucially though were falling into place that Oglova and Hansard were working on the songs together as well and, Han and Carney was putting the script together and as Glenn Hansard would tell Reverse Shot he just said that the songs were written by me and Ma he said some before filming some during some afterwards and he explained the process. He said, John showed us the script and we all talked about it for a few weeks. And Carney, he said, had a very particular aesthetic. And he said the fact he chose us to be in the film made it easier for us to write the songs that we wanted. That he would say, I want that certain kind of song. They could write that certain kind of song. And they knew that they were working towards what the director was looking for. Filming began and, and ended pretty much on once in January of 2006. They had just 17 days to film it. They shot the film in Dublin and they had around £70,000 to do the complete film. And so out of necessity, John Carney was shooting on digital. Now, this was in 2011 when that wasn't as commonplace as it is now. Digital technology was clearly evolving at great speed, but a lot of films were still being shot on 35mm film. Carney in his budget didn't he just didn't have it he didn't have the money to pay for the stock and the developing of the stock and also the limited magazine size of 35 millimeters uh, a 35 millimeter film would have restricted what he was able to shoot and he just said it was for economic and practical reasons that he lent towards digital 
the the funds that they'd actually got they come primarily from the Irish Film Board and he just said it was just enough to keep us going for a very short time and right throughout the making of Once they were on very very limited resources that they'd have a wish list of things that they wanted to do but they might have to turn up to the day of filming and just have to come up with a different plan and be very nimble about the film they were looking to make this didn't mean it didn't give Carney a lot of footage to work with in the editing room in fact shooting on digital unlocked that opportunity for him but it did mean that it was a kind of fast on their feet kind of film I mean a lot of the dialogue they're fairly open about this was improvised and that suited the fact that the two leads in the movie were non-actors really and one of whom's primary language wasn't really English she does a remarkable job but it just allowed them to settle into the characters and not worry about learning pages of lines and just try and be as truthful to themselves as they can and as Glenn Hansard explained the experience of those 17 days and he said there was a lot of self-deprecation from John Carney on the set in the way that he went about directing them he, he said he would say a line he was written was bolt was not very good and he'd ask us to get the idea across of what he was trying to say instead but in a believable way and he argued it needed to be loose though because neither of us had acted before and it would have made me very stiff if I'd had to learn a complete script verbatim Hansard said again I've no problem behind a guitar but whenever there was dialogue I was a wreck now, just to add to the pressure of putting once together, the shoot was on the streets of Dublin, but they'd not necessarily gone to the, the, the full extent of getting all the permissions they needed to make a film on the streets of the city. They didn't have a massive crew. They didn't have huge lighting rigs or anything even vaguely like that. What they had was really a tiny crew for a film of the scale of what it became. They were working with a couple of Sony HD cameras. They were working with family and friends, helping out as well they didn't have really the time to rehearse these were luxuries ill afforded to them what they did do while they were together is they watched lots of films so that they could get the kind of tone the tempo and also i think the impression i get is they just fancied watching a lot of films and so julie they did including some classic musicals and the idea as they were making the film was, well, th this hopefully we can get this into just a, a run in a small cinema in Dublin, something like that, and then put the film out on DVD and just see if it finds an audience there. At the point they were making this, and they're making this start of 2006, the DVD format and the DVD boom was just about peaking. And so DVD was a great way to make money back on your movies before people decided to stop buying them. And so there was a commercial route to this making at least a profit what there wasn't really was an obvious route to it getting a huge cinema release so Carney took his footage and I mean he took it into the edit suite and he's described how he's described in an interview how ruthless he had to be in the edit of the film but still he fashioned his cut and he, as many independent films do and in, with many independent filmmakers they said it was submitted to a bunch of festivals. I mean, major ones as well. The Toronto International Film Festival, for instance. And it was turned down from a bunch of festivals that it just couldn't get through. It couldn't get past the gatekeepers. But there was one that it did manage to sneak into a major festival. And boy, was this instrumental in, in turning the fortunes of, of so much to do with the film. That was the Sundance Film Festival, where once was picked up for its 2007 
its 2007 festival. That was taking place at the start of the year. So this is what about a year after they finished filming and the film went down a storm. It took home the World Cinema Audience Award at Sundance and John Carney's been back several times since with these films. And off the back of that, Fox Searchlight bought the US rights for the film for half a million dollars. That had covered the budget and put it firmly into profit before it had seen a single a single non-awards-based cinema screen. Incredible, really. The response to the film once it screened at Sundance as well, well, it was extraordinary. It was it was getting absolutely rave reviews from the critics who saw it when it first came out it was i mean it had already been previewed it's worth noting a, 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 a different cut of the film had made it to the galway film festival in july of 2006 but it was a it was a the final version as we know it now was the one that went to that went to sundance and at the point it did so it had a cinema release planned for march of 2007 a couple of months afterwards but the critics, I mean, it was just so acclaimed, so acclaimed. And rightly so. I, I really, really loved the film enormously. But off the back of that, well, th there was confidence really from Fox Searchlight to give the film a broader release than had originally been planned. And this was now not just going into Irish cinemas. It was going into UK cinemas. It was going into American cinemas. And oftentimes when a film is, bu is bought at Sundance, it takes ages for it to get a broader release anywhere else so i come back to the film coda which played in what january of, of the year of its release at sundance it then wasn't seen again until the autumn of that year and didn't really get a massive push until the end of it and so it would i mean it was a long journey in that case oftentimes it can take a good year or two in the case of once i mean the, the release in the uk was in march 2007 this was two months after the sundance debut and i mean again all contextual given the budget of the movie it turned into a little bit of a hit now, in the US, it would turn up on May the 18th to the 20th of 2007, the same weekend that Shrek the Third opened, the week of what, two weeks, two, three weeks after Spider-Man 3 had opened as well. And so what Fox Searchlight inevitably did is they just put it on one or two screens. I think it was two screens they put it on. And its per screen average was $30,000. Only uh, The only film to come close to that was the new Shrek release, and off the back of the word of mouth from Sundance, once had built up a degree of enthusiasm. And this was going to be a minor hit and a very profitable one as well. So by its second week, it's it's cracked the top 20 in the US and it's only playing on 20 screens at that point. By the time it completes its US run, once had grossed, I, I think it's about 9 million in the US in all. And then it added, I mean, it more than doubled it overseas. It's worldwide takings, $20.9 million and a calling card for John Carney, a calling card for its two leads as well. And ordinarily that would be it really however then more things happened to the film first of all it came time for the following year's awards and at the 80th academy awards which took place in uh, took place in february 2008 the nominees for amongst the nominees for best original song were songs from the film enchanted three songs from enchanted and alan menken who's won umpteen oscars for his song he he got his nominations in there uh, august rush there was a song nominated from that but 
it was Marquetta Ilova and Glenn Hansard who took home the Oscar for best original song. And I mean, it's almost a shell-shocked acceptance speech we got from Glenn Hansard that night. And I'm just going to give you a little taste of it right here. This is amazing. Uh, what are we doing here? This is mad. Uh, uh, we, we made this film uh, two years ago. Uh, we shot it on two handy cams. Uh, it took us three weeks to make. We made it for 100 grand. We never thought we'd ever come into a room like this and be in front of you people. Uh, it's been an amazing thing. And thanks for taking this film seriously, all of you. It means a lot to us. Thanks to the Academy. Thanks to all the people who have helped us. They know who they are. We don't need to say them. This is amazing. Make art. Make art. Yeah, thanks. And ordinarily, again, that would be it. However, there was an epilogue to this story when, well, the, the decision was made to turn it into a musical. And that was the work of Ender Walsh, who adapted it. The production was directed by John Tiffany. And first of all, it opened at the New York Theatre Workshop in December 2011 before moving to Broadway in 2012 and eventually the West End too. And by the, well, I mean, by the summer of 2012, it didn't just have an Oscar, once was also the recipient of eight Tony Awards in the US, including Best Musical, Best Direction of a Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Actor in a Musical. And it was this tiny little film, this tiny, tiny film was being adorned with accolades. I mean, the soundtrack was selling copies as well. There were fans of Once that were, I mean, Steven Spielberg talked about how it was a film that reinvigorated him. John Travolta was a fan. Bob Dylan was said to be a fan as well. Uh, Glenn Hansard, interestingly, wasn't overthrilled with the musical adaptation. In fact, he, I think he told Chud, he said, I didn't like the idea of it becoming a musical. I feared the overexposure would kill it. And in fact, the song Falling Softly, for which he won an Oscar, I mean, he stopped playing it as part of the fear of the overexposure. But he did also say, I suppose it helps me stand up and be in the world. And if I'm remembered for that one song, well, there are worse fates. The legacy of Once continues. I mean, the stage show keeps coming back. The film itself remains hugely popular. Um, it's still, I mean, it's still quite niche, really. I mean, it's, it's not done Spider-Man numbers or anything like that. But it has that notwithstanding just continued to endure and it continues to be watched. It continues to live all over streaming services as well. It's usually there somewhere. And, well, it launched it launched a whole bunch of careers. For Carney, he would go on and do uh, and do a bunch of films, including the wonderful, the wonderful Sing Street. Uh, Iglova and Hansel were together for a while as well and they've gone on to do, uh, separately they've gone on to do a whole bunch of uh, musical stuff. But once was one of those special lightning in a bottle moments i know it's a i know it's a cliche and a half to say so <laughs> just the whole confluence of circumstances that brought the film together the fact that they had virtually nothing to make it with and use their wits their ingenuity their sheer talent it is a delight of a film if you've not had the pleasure i really recommend seeking it out treat yourself do it as a double wheel with sing street what a night that would be and that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories, recorded in sweltering conditions here in the UK. As always, thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening. If I have not entirely bored you, you can find more from me on whatever Twitter's called this week, at Simon Brew. I'm on Blue Sky there as well, if anyone's there, but I'm still kind of exploring that. 
Film Stories is on Twitter-ish, whatever it is, at Film Stories. or on Facebook at facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline, youtube.com slash filmstories. Our website is filmstories.co.uk. That is updated every weekday with movie news and mayhem and reviews and features and all sorts of things there. And our shop is store.filmstories.co.uk, where you can buy our print magazines. We have lots of print magazines where you can buy our Blu-rays and you can just continue to support us there if you are so inclined to do so. It is much, much appreciated. Finally, the Patreon. Patreon again is patreon.com slash Simon Brew. But I am absolutely sweltering. Rarely has an episode of this podcast been brought to you by so much sweat. And with that image firmly in your mind, I'm going to go off and watch a whole bunch more films and start working on the next episode. Till the next time, look after yourselves. As always, the main thing is you all take care. Take care. Stay cool. Bye bye.